You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Welcome back to the Gog-Magog War Study. This is part five, the Armageddon Theory. So what is the Armageddon Theory? It is the theory that the Gog-Magog War of Ezekiel 38 and 39 sees its ultimate fulfillment with the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19. Usually, but not always, this theory is accompanied by the idea that Gog is the Antichrist. First, let's take a step back and discuss some of the timing options that people typically have for the Gog-Magog War. So you ask an average person, when do they think the Gog-Magog War will occur? You have people that believe it will happen before the seven-year period even begins. There is also people that believe it occurs at the midpoint of that seven-year period. I should say that there is a group in between there, but for simplicity's sake, I'll just skip them. There's some people that think it happens just after the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, but it doesn't really matter because the reasons that they're wrong is the same reasons that number two is wrong. Another option people have is the one we'll discuss today is that they think it will be fulfilled at Armageddon. And then there are people that think it will be fulfilled at the end of the millennium. All the views that see the Gog-Magog War taking place before Armageddon, so that would include before the seven-year period, just after the seven-year period, or at the midpoint of the seven-year period, all of those views, in my opinion, are extremely easy to refute. And I would do so in a number of ways. The first is by pointing out verses like Ezekiel 39.7, which says that Yahweh's name, God's name, is never to be profaned again after the end of the Gog-Magog War. So let's read that. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. So there is a lot of language after the Gog-Magog War ends in Ezekiel 39, this this concept of finality. It's, it's, it's repeated over and over and over in lots of different ways. And we'll just pick some of those out. The idea that God says he will not allow his name to ever be profaned again after the end of the Gog-Magog War. Well, what do you do if you think it happens, you know, before the midpoint with the two witnesses? I mean, people are in, in Israel are rejoicing at the deaths of the two witnesses, which doesn't sound like people who are finished with rebellion. In fact, people are explicitly still blaspheming God during the day of the Lord. Also, we have um, the Antichrist sitting in the temple declaring himself to be God, which is the uh, uh, apex of blasphemy. Certainly, there is blasphemy and rebellion against God's name uh, after, you know, any time before the midpoint. Another problem with the views of the timing of the Gog-Magog War before Armageddon, at the very least, is that the nations will recognize the sovereignty of God as a result of the Gog-Magog War. Ezekiel 38:16b. I will bring you against my land so that the nations may acknowledge me, when before their eyes I magnify myself. Ezekiel 38:23. I will exalt and magnify myself. I will reveal myself before many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 39:7b. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. So if one of the points of the Gog-Magog War from God's perspective is to have the nations recognize his sovereignty at its conclusion, then you have a problem if you think that it happened 
before at least Armageddon because it basically didn't work because the nations are explicitly in rebellion against God all throughout the 70th week of Daniel, Revelation 11.2, 18.3, 16.14. In fact, the kings of the earth who are gathered to battle against Christ at Armageddon at the very, very end of the 70th week of Daniel presumably include all or most of the nations of the earth. Another problem is that Israel is supposed to recognize the Lord's sovereignty in totality, that is, the northern and southern kingdoms, after the Gog-Magog War. Ezekiel 39.22 says, So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Now, the problem with this is that that event uh, cannot happen until after the 70th week of Daniel, at the very least, because, as we know from Daniel 9.24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish transgressions, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So, 70 weeks, that means the entire seven-year period. It can't happen before that. You don't get the reconciliation of Israel before the at least the end of that seven-year period. I would also say that Israel cannot recognize the Lord's sovereignty in totality uh, before the end of the 70th week because of the time of Jacob's trouble, which is a purifying event for the Jews during the last half of the final seven-year period. Another problem for those views about the timing of the Gog-Magog War are phrases in Ezekiel 38 and 39 like dwelling securely, dwelling in a land that has undergone a restoration from the sword, a land of unwalled villages, peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. All these phrases are inconsistent with Israel's geopolitical situation currently or for the foreseeable future. Nor could one argue that this is some kind of false security brokered by the Antichrist, since that false security event isn't supposed to occur until the first day of the 70th week and is broken at the midpoint. So this was written for the people that believe the kind of Hal Lindsey version, that the Gog-Magog War will occur before the 70th week. They can't argue that these, these phrases like dwelling securely are just a, a false piece, because that false piece event, the is literally the first event of the seven-year period. So you can't even pretend like there is a false peace because it hasn't happened yet in their view. The mid-70th week view of the timing of the Gog-Magog War suffers from many of the same problems as the pre-70th week view. For example, God's name will be profaned again. The nations won't recognize the sovereignty of God in totality, and neither will Israel. It does have a few additional ones. For example, there is no indication that after the Gog-Magog War, Israel will once again be subjected to conquest. This would necessarily be the case if it occurred at the midpoint, since a great deal of destruction and conquest begins at that time. Matthew 24, 15-21. Ezekiel says there will be no one to, quote, make them afraid, and God will leave, quote, none of them captive any longer after the war. The mid-70th week view essentially has Israel being miraculously delivered by God only to be handed over to the Antichrist again for the final part of the 70th week. Zechariah 13, 8-9 says that two-thirds of Israel will be killed during this time, and Revelation 11:2 says the Gentiles will trample Jerusalem for three and a half years after this point. This is hardly consistent with the language of a final victory and establishment of universal peace that seems to come after the Gog-Magog War. 
Another problem is that in Ezekiel, Israel is said to bury the bodies of Gog and his armies for seven months and use the weapons of the dead soldiers for fuel for seven years after the Gog-Magog war. This seems inconceivable during the Great Tribulation when the saints are hunted and killed or during the Day of the Lord when the trumpet and bowl judgments are taking place. Another problem related to that is that the burying of the bodies is described in Ezekiel 39 as a triumphant event that cleanses the land. Ezekiel 39, 12-13 says, For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them, in order to cleanse the land. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying, and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. How can the land be considered cleansed or even beginning to be cleansed during the time before the final judgments found in Revelation, such as turning the sea into blood, killing all the life in the sea. A plain reading of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a picture of a final destruction, followed by restoration. But this view anticipates that the Gog-Magog War is followed by the worst persecutions and devastations the world has ever seen. Moving on to the Armageddon theory of the timing of the Gog-Magog War. And this is one that I actually respect because on the surface, it seems to be answering some of the problems that the other views have. For example, you could make a case that Yahweh's name will never be profaned again after the end of the Gog-Magog War. Armageddon certainly is at the end of the destruction. It's sort of the finale, the conclusion of the day of the Lord. After that, you're going to have the millennium and the eternal kingdom. So there's a case to be made there. The same thing with the nations recognizing the sovereignty of God as a result of the Gog-Magog War. After all, we see in the millennium, Egypt and Assyria, they're, they're bringing gifts to the millennial temple, etc., also, Israel recognizes the Lord's sovereignty in totality. You could make a case that, as we said, you know, the, the time of Jacob's trouble is over, the 70th weeks have ended, so it has some very strong reasons for the Armageddon theory of the timing of the Gog-Magog War. But what do we do about Revelation 20 in that case, where if you believe that it's literal, if you believe that there is a thousand-year period after Armageddon, and then Satan is released, Basically, if you believe what the Bible says in Revelation 20, because even before the passages we're about to read, it's very explicit that, you know, Satan has to be released a little while after this. It talks about a thousand years. I don't know how many times. It's very explicit. But this, from 7 through 10, it says this. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The problem is, is that if you believe that there really is a battle of some kind after the thousand years, and most people that believe in the Armageddon theory tend to believe that, from what I can tell. They don't like talking about this verse, but when you sort of twist their arm, they'll admit, yeah, okay, there is a battle over there. I, I don't know much about it, but it does happen. If you do believe it, then you know that it, these promises about the nations not being rebellious anymore and not profaning God's name really can't be complete until the end of the millennium, just before the uh, Great White Throne Judgment, which occurs after this. Because Satan, when released at this time, is able to gather enough people, as it says here, their number is like the sand of the sea. So a lot of people from explicitly the nations are not done being rebellious at Armageddon. And God's name is apparently profaned again after Armageddon. We'll come back to all this, but I just wanted to go ahead and, and mention that. 
Before I get into the details of listing the problems with the Armageddon theory, I think it's important to list the main similarities because these are important similarities that I don't want to minimize because I actually think that there is a reason that there are similarities between the uh, Battle of Armageddon and the Gog Magog War in Revelation 20 after the millennium is because it's a typological prefiguration. It is the near fulfillment to the far fulfillment that will be seen after the millennium. And so there are necessarily things that are similar. And I think these are the things that most people are thinking about when they're trying to argue that Armageddon is the final or far fulfillment of it. They're usually thinking of these things. So the bird feast in Ezekiel 39 um, and the bird feast in Revelation. So I'm going to read these because we're going to actually end up picking this apart a little bit when we get into the differences. So it's important to go ahead and get it in your mind. The bird feast in Ezekiel says, as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and all, and all the beasts of the field. Assemble and come gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, of the he goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan, and you shall eat uh, eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast I am preparing for you and you shall be filled at my table with horses, charioteers, with mighty men, all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. In Revelation, it says this, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captives, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, their riders, and the flesh of all the men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Beside the bird feast, though, I think there is one big thing, which is the general circumstances. They both have large armies gathered against Israel. Both armies are defeated divinely, whether that is by Jesus himself or by God the Father. I would say that both armies are not successful in their mission, and I would say that in both cases, the battle represents a climax of sorts in which the promises of God follow. So that is pretty compelling. I certainly have my work cut out for me in order to prove that Armageddon cannot be the ultimate fulfillment of the Gog Magog War in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I've got four big problems with this theory and then four smaller problems that I'll get to later. Starting off with the big problems, the first one is the dwelling securely problems. And if you'll excuse me, I really need to read this entire passage because there are specific terms in here that are going to come up in a minute. And after many days, you will be mustered. In the latter years, you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. You will advance, coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, and you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages, and I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls, having no bars or gates, to see spoil, to carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited, and the people who were gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell at the center of the earth, 
Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? The problem is, if you think the Gog-Magog War sees its ultimate fulfillment at Armageddon, you must understand what we just read to be a false peace. I have a quote here from Joel Richardson who holds to this view. He says, It must be highlighted that the sense of security that Israel experiences in Ezekiel is false. The first thing I would say is to come to the idea that there is a false peace instead of a real peace in Ezekiel 38 and 39, you need to do eisegesis. You need to bring your own conclusions to the text because the text itself in Ezekiel 38 and 39 does not give you that option to think that it is a false peace. The reason that you have to believe that it's false if you hold to the Armageddon theory is that in your view, there's no possible scenario in which Israel could be considered at peace just before Armageddon. The idea that it is a false peace in Ezekiel is especially bad to me because there is such an obvious answer to that, which is Revelation 20, which says that the Gog-Magog War occurs after the thousand years of peace. So this would be a perfect example of people living securely without walls or gates. In fact, the next section, we're going to look at the world of Ezekiel and show how clearly it's painting the picture of people that have been living for a thousand years without need of bars or gates and the rest of it. So there is this wonderful alternative. So to just to say that this is a false piece because it doesn't fit with your theory, I consider especially bad. But I also consider it bad because of the study that we did in part two about context in this series. And that is because if you understand the context, which started way back in Ezekiel 33, the so-called six messages or six night messages of Ezekiel, they all have the same theme, they all have the same pattern, it's part of the same vision that Ezekiel has, it just lasts for a, a number of chapters. The whole point of all of those things is to encourage Israel essentially about the millennium, that one day they will be regathered, they will have a fruitful land, they, the Messiah will be there, they will dwell securely, no famine, peace with nations, the whole house of Israel will be there. These themes, including things that we read directly, like the waste places being rebuilt, that is a direct theme. Places like Ezekiel 36.10, uh, the waste places being rebuilt in Ezekiel 36, 33, 37, match, of course, with the waste places being rebuilt in 38.8.12. And, and all of those other passages are explicitly about the millennium. The Messiah is there. There's just no way around it. So you have all this millennial language in Ezekiel. In fact, that passage we just read is like this uh, cornucopia of, of, of terms that have been used as a part of the six night messages to explicitly refer to the millennium. So the point of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is to understand this as the culmination of it, to understand that, that, that peace, that the promises are in fact true. So to believe that it's a false peace is to, I think, miss the entire point of this vision starting in 33 and culminating in 39. It does also appear that even the attack of Gog is a part of the purpose that is to demonstrate that the peace is in fact secure. And there are, as we'll see in future parts, other places in the, in the prophets, in the minor prophets, in the major prophets, where this idea of the millennial peace being tested uns and unsuccessfully by the attacker to the glory of God is a part of the system. In other words, when God puts the hooks in Gog's jaws to draw him into this battle so that he could be 
destroyed in a miraculous way so that the nations would glorify God. It's all for his glory. He does, this is, even that moment seems like, oh, God's out of control all of a sudden. But it's the culmination of the Ezekiel, Ezekiel messages. It's not God losing control all of a sudden or something going wrong. This is still an encouragement. But that, as we'll see, there is a theme of the, the peace being tested, even in the other prophets, that I, I really think will help to drive that sort of overarching message home. Another problem I have with saying that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a false piece instead of a genuine piece is that it doesn't seem to make any sense of the timeline. It's almost hoping that I don't know enough about the end times to call its bluff. What I mean is that the idea that people have is that the Antichrist makes a false peace agreement with Israel, and he does so at the beginning of that last seven-year period. It's what kicks off the seven-year period, right? And then three and a half years later, at the midpoint of that seven-year period, is when the abomination of desolation occurs, when he begins the persecution, the greatest persecution of all time. So the idea people have there is that he sort of broke the peace agreement because then he starts killing people willy-nilly, right? So peace agreement off at the midpoint. So in what sense can the Antichrist's false peace exist at the Battle of Armageddon, which would be three and a half years later after the midpoint. So well after the supposed peace agreement has been broken, these people in Israel and Jerusalem are living like they are in a false peace, even though they've been persecuted by the worst persecution of all time, the time of Jacob's trouble, the dragon has chased them to the wilderness. I mean, none of this makes sense. I mean, so I need somebody to explain to me like I'm five how these people can be living this false peace life just before the Battle of Armageddon in Jerusalem. One really quick point on the dwelling securely problem before we move on is this phrase, in the latter years. So in Ezekiel 38, it says, after many days, you will be mustered in the latter years. And a lot of people use this to say, hey, look, this is a prophecy of the end times, which of course I agree with. But the underlying Greek can be used in a lot of different ways. It can be basically used to be like a general end times kind of thing, but it is also used on several occasions to just be speaking about the millennium. Isaiah 2.2, 2, Hosea 3.5, Micah 4.1, and I'll just read Isaiah 2.2. 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. So this is very specifically millennial. It's talking about the city on the hill. It's talking about the nations having a pilgrimage system to Jerusalem. It's very much the millennium. So my only point here is that the specific underlying Greek phrase in Ezekiel can be shown to be speaking of the millennium in other places. And thus, the peace that is described could be understood to be the millennial peace that would exist during that time. The next big problem I have with this theory helps to make the previous problem more clear, I think, and I call it the day of the Lord problem. The idea is that what we just read in Ezekiel 38 about the over-the-top descriptions of peace and prosperity, the quiet people dwelling securely, they've got no bars or gates, they've got lots of livestock and goods, etc., etc., is supposed to be a description of the world just before the Battle of Armageddon. That just doesn't make any sense, no matter what your view on the timing of the judgments of the Day of the Lord are. For example, just cherry-picking a few Day of the Lord judgments, all of which would be agreed upon to be before Armageddon by pretty much everybody. Demon scorpion-like beings have been tormenting people for five months. Four angels bound in the Euphrates kill a third of mankind. Painful sores on everyone who has had the mark 
Every living thing in the sea is dead. All the fresh water is blood. The sun has been scorching people with fire and fierce heat. So those two realities are just impossible to reconcile to the same thing. On the one hand, just before Armageddon and Revelation, we have a literal apocalypse happening. And yet they're saying that Ezekiel 38 and 39, which they want us to believe is also a description of the world just before Armageddon, is describing what seems to be a perfect peace, a perfect prosperity, livestock and gold and the rest of it and dwelling without walls or gates. And even if it's a false peace, the fact that a false peace could be that good just before Armageddon is absurd. Some of you might think, well, maybe there is sort of a supernatural protection for the Jews or for Jerusalem during this time, and maybe that can help explain it. But I'll just name a couple things that show that that's not the case. First, the time, well, I should say first that the 144,000 do get sealed, and so there is a supernatural prote protection from them. Also, in Revelation 12, 6, the woman flees from the attack of the Antichrist. She flees to the wilderness. So there's another protection, but it's not in Jerusalem. She, she's protected for the three and a half years outside of Jerusalem. The time of Jacob's trouble is a persecution of the Jews. It's a, uh, it might even be considered a, a purification event for the Jews in Jeremiah 30, Daniel 11, 36 through 45. Another item is that Jesus tells people to flee Jerusalem after the abomination of desolation at the midpoint in Matthew 24. So if they're listening to Jesus, they would have already left Jerusalem three and a half years before this event. Jerusalem is trampled by the Gentiles for three and a half years, Luke 21, 24. Uh, the two witnesses is a kind of an interesting thing. I mean, they're, they're making sure no rain falls, their dead bodies lie in the streets, an earthquake kills a tenth of the city when they're resurrected. So basically, there's not a lot going on good in Jerusalem before this, and we have explicit evidence to suggest that. There's just no way, again, to reconcile Ezekiel 38 and 39 in that piece and say somehow that fits into the world just before Armageddon. So the next big problem is the Revelation 20 problem. And what I mean by that is that in Revelation 20, we've seen it so many times at this point, we have John describing a war that looks like a three-verse summary of Ezekiel 38 and 39. We've got these nations being deceived from the four corners of the earth. They are gathered together for, uh, to battle, to go to war against Jerusalem, but they don't make it. They are destroyed by God uh, from heaven with fire and et cetera, et cetera. The problem, and the words Gog Magog are used. The only problem is it says it happens after the thousand years are ended. So the big question is, well, why can't this be a three verse summary of Ezekiel? Why shouldn't Ezekiel 38 and 39 be this? What, what's your argument against this? And the main argument that people give is crickets. Honestly, go look at the Gog Magog studies out there and you're going to hear about Ezekiel 38 and 39. You're going to hear about their viewpoints, all their arguments, but they won't even mention Revelation 20 in the entire presentation. Usually, and I've been looking for this, mostly the way I find it through pastors is if they are expositional pastors where they do like a series on the book of Revelation, and then, you know, 10 years later, they do a series on Ezekiel or something like that, so I can actually compare what they believe. But they won't willingly bring up Revelation 20 during their Ezekiel study because it forces them to say things that I don't think that they want to say. And I believe most of them knowingly 
do tricks and stuff. So I mentioned before, like some people will say, well, why can't this be the same thing? Be the same thing? Cause they all only deal with revelation 20, not an expositional, not, Hey, let's learn about this war that comes after the thousand years, or let's dig deeper into this. It's all, it's all like combative. It's all like, let's find, let me try to quickly prove to you that my other theory about Ezekiel is true. And this one is wrong. And that's the attitude people have with it. So it's just like two, you know, minutes of saying this can't be the same war because insert, basically a lie. I've mentioned before people saying this can't be the same war because here in Revelation 20, the nations are coming from the four corners of the earth. And in Ezekiel 38, they're coming from the north or primarily the north, or they'll say something sneaky there if they're smart. Uh, But what that problem with that, of course, is that Ezekiel 38 and 39 explicitly has the nations from the four cardinal directions, Gog and Magog and Tagarma and that little J-Path group, they are coming from the north, but then you've got Persia to the east, you've got Cush to the south, and you've got uh, Libya to the west. So you have a perfect description of the four corners of the earth. It's the same thing. They're surrounding the camp of the states. The fire comes down from heaven. So my point is that this forces them to say things that I don't think that they would like to say. Another example is this term Gog Magog. So they're kind of forced to say, yeah, John uses the term Gog Magog here, but he doesn't really mean like the Gog Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. He was just sort of using the term to kind of like hearken back to it just because it's a similar situation. You know, you know, like you do. (laughs) So they don't like saying that. Um, And then you have the more radical version. Uh, Michael Heiser who I love, and I love his studies when he's talking about, you know, ancient languages or the supernatural stuff or, you know, the Book of Enoch kind of stuff. He's just no one better. But, you know, when eschatology, and he would even admit eschatology is not his his thing, and I think part of the reason is because he doesn't believe in a literal millennium. So I don't think a lot of things actually can be reconciled in his views, but that's my opinion. But in this particular situation, I mean, and go listen to that podcast if you want. It's a, the Naked Bible podcast about a, a Gog Magog War. It's a two-part series. The last, I don't know, 10, 10 minutes or something, he gets into this revelation thing. And he literally says, John made a mistake here, that John really accidentally mentioned the Armageddon War twice. And this whole thing about the thousand years, I mean, it was just sort of like, you know, kind of a mistake. But my point is that they don't like talking about Revelation 20 and they keep it at the end of the podcast and they don't mention it in their studies because it is kryptonite to basically any theory except for Ezekiel 38 and 39 really is fully uh, fulfilled after the end of the millennium. The final big problem I have with the Armageddon theory is this idea that it's not really finished at Armageddon, is it? So I mentioned earlier in this study about how these Things like God's name never being profaned again after the end of Gog Magog War means that it can't be certainly before Armageddon. And I say it like that because I think there is a sense when, you know, during the millennium, God's name isn't profaned again, but there is a lot of caveats with the millennium. If you're, if you're a student of it, you know that he ruled, God, Jesus rules with a rod of iron. There is sin. He, he punishes sin with lack of rain in certain cases. And people do go up to worship him in Jerusalem, but, but people aren't saved. They're survivors in a lot of senses, and their descendants from, uh, you know, the, the day of the Lord. And so the, the, things aren't perfect. They still have to trust God and believe in the gospel, presumably, and all those things to be saved, but they don't start off saved. They have longer lives, but it's not eternal lives. So we could go on and say that things aren't perfectly perfect there. And we know, for example, the nations are not in total subjection to God at the end of Armageddon. It really requires them being at the end of the Gog Magog War in uh, uh, Revelation 20 to come to that place because it's only when Satan is released that he 
convinces and deceives the nations to go to war against God. So it, not, nothing really has its final completion at Armageddon if you believe in the millennium. If you believe in Revelation 20, you know that it's not really over until then. In fact, I think that's why the great white throne judgment is not until then either. So there is a, the great white throne judgment of the wicked. They, they're not judged according to their deeds. And I think they have to wait until the end of Gog Magog for that to happen, for the final completion to happen. So why is it happening? Why does God do it? I don't know, but I could guess. I mean, I think that there are, you know, he may want people to see that even in a perfect government, there's still rebellion. I don't know, but but there is something going on there that's bigger than us. But if you believe the Bible, I think you can start to make sense of it. All right, moving on to the little problems, and these should go a lot quicker because they're just little tiny nitpicky things. So in Ezekiel 38, 20, there are fish in the sea. But in Armageddon, there are no fish left alive in the sea. So Ezekiel 38, 20a says, The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep on the earth and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. So that, that's in Ezekiel. And yet in Revelation 16, 3, which is in uh, just before Armageddon, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. Another little problem is that in Ezekiel, Gog explicitly comes to take stuff, to get spoil, Ezekiel 38, 10 through 13. Whereas the Antichrist comes to just make war against Jesus, no spoil is mentioned, and contextually it would be unlikely because everything is desolate by Armageddon. And I mentioned this because of the overemphasis of the plunder aspect in Ezekiel. You know, it mentions, have you come to take plunder and to take booty? Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? The idea that there is even great plunder, you know, and I think this goes back to the earlier part of the Ezekiel messages where it's talking about how in the millennial kingdom there will be great plenty, no more famine, etc. It talks about all the livestock they will have. So this is just pointing back to that, and it shows that uh, that there is a contradiction there, I think. The last two of these little problems are admittedly a little weak, but let's just go with them anyway. In Ezekiel 38, 22, the armies are defeated by fire from heaven, pestilence, and swords of the brothers against brothers. But in Revelation 19, 15, and 21, the armies are defeated by the sword from Jesus's mouth. No fire is mentioned. So I think that's interesting, and I think it often gets overlooked that in Revelation, you know, no fire is mentioned, but in both Revelation 20 and Ezekiel 30, the emphasis is on the fire from heaven that devours them. And yet it's Jesus's mouth and sword, etc. in Revelation. So it's an interesting little connection. And finally, just birds are called to the feast in Revelation 19, 17, and 21, whereas birds and beasts are called in Ezekiel 39, 17. So that is the weakest of my arguments. And that's why I put that at the very end like that, as you do. Okay, moving on to some arguments from Armageddon theorists. So I just wanted to interact a little bit with some of the other things that people are saying to, you know, quote unquote, prove that Armageddon is the logical fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And one I had not heard before was from Michael Heiser. And he said that there is day of the Lord language in Ezekiel 38 and 39. The eschatological day of the Lord is one of the most prevalent themes in eschatology. It is uh, has a lot of language that is very similar. You kind of know when you're getting into a day of the Lord passage. You know, functionally, the day of the Lord begins probably at the parousia, uh, the, the return of Christ, and it extends for all practical purposes through Armageddon. 
that's the way people normally think of it. That is to say, the, the return of Christ and the beginning of the day of the Lord or the judgments and the sort of completion of the day of the Lord. But there is sort of a broader sense in which the day of the Lord is also everything that comes after that. It's all the day of the Lord. But what people mostly mean is that judgment aspect, which begins at the Perusia and ends around Armageddon. So the idea is, if there is day of the Lord language in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it sort of necessarily links the passage to some time within that seven-year concept. So it's a, it would be a decent argument if it was true. And I was interested in this because, you know, as most pre-Rathers, I'm sort of hyper aware of Day of the Lord stuff. We're sort of obsessed with the Day of the Lord, and I've gotten pretty good at recognizing Day of the Lord language in certain passages. And I have never noticed any Day of the Lord language in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So this is how he explains that there is Day of the Lord language. He points to Ezekiel 38, 4, which says, And I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses, and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor. So it's the idea of hooks in your jaws. And I don't think that he is even claiming that that's Day of the Lord language. It's, it's, it's not Day of the Lord language. But this is what he does. He says, well, look, it says hooks in your jaws there. Okay, so follow me now to another place in Ezekiel, um, several chapters earlier in Ezekiel 29, 3 through 4, when Ezekiel is making a prophecy about Pharaoh in Egypt because Israel had been putting their hopes in Egypt and, and it was explaining that how Egypt would actually end up being destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and Anyway, so this is what it says in that section. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, my Nile is my own, I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your own jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. And I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. So this isn't a day of the Lord passage either, and hooks in your jaws isn't day of the Lord language. I think at that point, everybody's still agreeing here. But what Heiser is doing is saying, well, look, he's putting the hooks in your jaws in the great dragon. So here's another premise that we want to do. We want to say the great dragon is Leviathan, which I got problems with, but we'll come back to, and for the sake of argument, we'll say, okay, it's Leviathan. And so, and then the punchline is, and we know from another passage, Isaiah 27, 1, that Leviathan is destroyed during the day of the Lord. So to recap, he says that there is day of the Lord language in Ezekiel 38 and 39 because the term hooks in your jaws is mentioned. Also, because the term hooks in your jaws is mentioned in another place where it's talking about Pharaoh. And in that passage, the hooks go into this great dragon of the streams. And if we go to another place, we can see that there is another great dragon there. He doesn't have hooks in his jaws or anything, but he is destroyed in the day of the Lord. So we've got two non-day of the Lord passages that if you connect to the same dragon, then you can then connect back to a place where the day of the Lord is mentioned. It's an incredibly roundabout way that I think any professor of hermeneutics would give you an F in if you tried to say this is how we know that day of the Lord language is in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And I would say, I don't agree with the premises at all that you absolutely need to agree to. So for example, in Ezekiel 29, I don't think that that great dragon, some uh, translations call it a, a monster, 
is Leviathan or that we're supposed to understand it as Leviathan. I think it's just a reference to a crocodile kind of talking about the bullish nature of Pharaoh um, and how you know he puts hooks in your jaws, which also is not a technical term. Hooks in your jaws is being used here. It's, it's used like other allusions are used in different ways throughout the Bible, not technical term, always to mention Leviathan or anything like that. Uh, and, you know, it's used, hooks in your jaws are used to talk about how they would take slaves in a procession from, you know, like Nebuchadnezzar or whatever would, would take slaves from one place to another. But yeah, it's talking about a crocodile here in streams, which is different than Leviathan, who is the dragon that is in the sea, Isaiah 27, 1. So, I think that that's an important thing, and I think Heiser even even tries to make the allusion to Leviathan and the beast from the sea in Revelation. So that's an com- important component even to him that he has to come from the sea. This thing is in the Nile and the streams, which is a monster that everybody in the ancient world probably knew about. Like, hey, they got these huge lizards in the Nile, man. You should see them. They're like massive and they're dangerous. Another argument from Armageddon theorists really comes as sort of the punchline, maybe not the punchline, but as a logical outgrowth of another teaching that they have been teaching. So for example, uh, Joel Richardson or anybody that believes in the Islamic Antichrist typically will teach that the Antichrist is an Assyrian. Now we learned in what, part two, uh, that the the northern cohort there from J-Path, there are, they're basically all in eastern Turkey. So if Gog is coming from Eastern Turkey, and they have convinced themselves that the Antichrist will be an Assyrian, essentially from Turkey, then it's not much of a jump to say, well, then this guy is Gog, you know, whatever happens, the consequences, we've got this one sort of geographical connection. And I'm not going to spend the time debunking the idea that the Antichrist is an Assyrian here, but I will say that I'm uh, very much opposed to the idea. I wrote basically an entire book about it. It's called The Islamic Antichrist Debunked. It is totally free online. I went through the trouble of putting it all in HTML. So you can go to BibleProphecyText.com. There is a chapter in there called The Assyrian in Isaiah and Micah, in which I go through the specific arguments that they make about how they come to that conclusion. I think you will see if you read that, that you know it's just not a good argument at all. Um, but anyway, you can check that out for yourself, but I did want to mention that for the sake of, uh, completeness. Perhaps because I am tired and I didn't want to write any more about this, I did just copy and paste something from that book about my view on Armageddon and how I relate it to Ezekiel 38 and 39. I say, though I firmly believe for the reasons I have stated above that the war... Ezekiel describes in chapters 38 and 39 must have its ultimate and most literal fulfillment in the war described by John in Revelation 27 through 10. I am not opposed to the idea that the war of Armageddon is a kind of type fulfillment of the Gog Magog war. I do believe there are certain aspects of Armageddon that parallel the Gog Magog war. For example, the descriptions of the birds feasting on the bodies is very similar in Ezekiel 39 and Revelation 19. But like other prophecies in scripture that have a near and far fulfillment, the earlier event has some aspects that could be said to have been fulfilled, while the final event will fulfill all aspects of the prophecy perfectly and literally. Take, for example, the prophecies of Antiochus Epiphanes given to us by Daniel. Quite a few people, mostly preterists, would say that those prophecies were completely fulfilled by Antiochus. But most premillennial scholars recognize it would be impossible for Antiochus to have fulfilled all of those prophecies himself. 
and a future fulfillment with the Antichrist is required to fulfill the prophecy completely and literally. Jesus endorses this understanding of the prophecies about Antiochus awaiting their most accurate fulfillment in the future with the Antichrist when he tells his followers to look for the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of by Daniel. Similar near-far fulfillments follow the same pattern. All this to say that I think we should see Armageddon as a limited or near fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39, but because of the various problems with equating Armageddon with the War of Gog listed above, it simply cannot be the fullest or most literal fulfillment. That distinction must go to the Gog-Magog War mentioned by John in Revelation 20. Finally, I want to reiterate the 4D chess theory that I talked about when I was doing the section about context and how the Bible seems to be full of near-far uh, prophecies. Ezekiel 33 through 39 is a great example. It was encouraging people in so many different generations, giving them specific stuff for them, but also having future fulfillment. So there was both near and far, and in some cases, really far fulfillments to all these prophecies that made sense for every generation. So that's what the Bible is to me, is a series of near-far fulfillments. And the failure to understand near-far prophecies is the root cause of many errors. For example, preterism, which we just mentioned, is basically entirely exists because a group of people just don't want to see that near-far prophecies exist. Replacement theology, that the church has taken the place of Israel and that there are no more future promises for Israel, that is a false teaching that is entirely about the inability to see the near-far relationship of prophecy. Modern Judaism, in a sense, is a reflection of the inability to see the near-far relationship to prophecy. I mean, ostensibly, the reason that they didn't accept Jesus as Messiah is because he didn't fulfill the things that they expected the Messiah to fill, that were prophesied to fulfill, to defeat their enemies, to make Jerusalem the capital city of the world. We know he will do that in a far, complete fulfillment, uh, but he didn't do it in the near fulfillment, and that caused a pretty big error there. And I'm sure there are a lot more about this. So so the idea here that I'm trying to convey that isn't a crazy one. And it should seem logical to you that there is a near-far fulfillment to a lot of things. And this is basically a picture-perfect one. And we're going to go through some of this to continue to prove this. Uh, so stay tuned. You can go to the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. You can go to the website, BibleProphecyText.com if you want to read the books that I've been talking about. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode.